Chapter Eighteen of the Green Millennium. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Green Millennium by Fritz Leiber. Chapter Eighteen. The Accolade living room was as crazily cluttered as when Phil last saw it. No one had done much, if any, cleaning up after the fight. In addition, there were a large number of dirty plates, cups, and glasses abandoned in odd places. Judging by the remnants of food and drink in them, three informal meals had been consumed since last night, not counting snacks. The black velvet curtains at the far end of the room had been pulled aside, revealing the altar Earl had prepared for Lucky in what had been the dining room a century ago. It consisted of a small table or box set against the far wall and covered with reddish-brown velvet that trailed to the floor in graceful folds. Fastened to the wall above it was an ancient auk, or crux and santa, the Egyptian cross with looped top, symbolizing procreation and life. On lower tables to either side were large unlit candles and statuettes of many of the Egyptian gods, queenly Isis, whip-wielding Osiris, jackal-jawed Anubis, and cat-headed Bast herself. And there was the same profusion of cats, though they were no longer peaceful as they'd been when Lucky was in the house. They stalked about with ears drawn back and fur fluffed fearsomely. They ambushed each other from behind and under furniture. They snarled and jumped whenever they met. Those wolfing the bits of food left on plates would lift their heads every few seconds to hiss warnings. The only one asleep was impiously curled on Lucky's altar. The dark low table inlaid with a silver pentacle had been righted and placed in the center of the room. On it were glasses and a bottle of brandy. Beside it sat Juno Jones, still in her dowdy dress with the ripped sleeves hanging from her meaty arms, but with her flower-covered hat once more gemmed down over her cropped blonde hair. She looked sullen and on the defensive. Across the table from her, leaning forward in their chairs, sat Dion de Silva and Morton Opperly. Both of them stood up as Satraverell triumphantly slipped Phil and Dighty into the room, saying, Our council of war, or perhaps I should say muscular peace, is complete. Opperly smiled courteously, seeming completely at home in these wild, wonderful, and crummy surroundings. Perhaps a mind hungry for any and all facts liked a grubby bohemian atmosphere. Dion de Silva, on the other hand, as soon as he spotted Dighty, put down the big glass of whiskey he was holding, and whipped out three or four words in a foreign language, then caught himself and changed to, Hello, darling! Great sea! Hello, hello, hello! By this time he had Dighty in his arms and was hugging her with a hungriness that struck Phil as distinctly unbrotherly. She wasn't being any too sisterly about it herself. But finally she pushed him away with a gasp. That's enough, she told him. Great sea too, dumbhead. About time turn up. Dion looked hurt for as long as it took him to get his glass of whiskey. Know what doing? he asked his sister excitedly. Yes, get drunk, she told him, and whispered to Phil. Know what Dion's short for? Godwine. Pick good name, eh? No get drunk, Dion asserted with some dignity. Then his excitement got the better of him again, and he burst out with, We finding pussycat. There was a giggle that Phil recognized. Looking around, he saw Mary Accolay sitting in her alcove, backed by her shelves of wax dolls, 
and busy at work sewing clothes for another under a large magnifier. Satcheverell's witch-nosed young wife had shifted to an almost off-the-bosom evening dress and tied a huge green bow around her coarse, dark hair. That man, he cuts me up in little pieces every time he says a word, she gurgled, without pausing in her work. He's so cute. Thanks, sweetheart, Deanne replied, gaily wagging his glass at her. I cute all over, all full surprises. Show sometime. Dighty suppressed the guffaw and whispered to Phil. Remember tell you? Two legs, milk glands? Phil nodded, though he judged that Dion's interest in Mary didn't nearly come up to his thirsty adoration of Dora Pans. The solder, Phil felt shocked at how glibly the word came into his mind, was just keeping his hand in. Sechevrel ignored the flirtatious interchange. His sunburned features gleamed with controlled excitement. The young lady is Dighty de Silva, Dion's sister, he told Offerly and Juno. Then he turned to Phil. I suppose you're wondering why Dr. Opperly and Signor de Silva are here. Well, I brought them along with me from the Foundation, because both of them are genuinely interested in him, and among the lot of us I think we have a very good chance of delivering him from his enemies. What he mean him? Dighty asked Phil. He means Pussycat? Phil nodded. I mean the green one, Satchevarel confirmed a bit reprovingly. I mean Bast returned the bringer of love and concord. Dighty didn't bother with that, but went on to whisper to Phil, He say Opley, Opley nice slim man, their good face. Meet us, please? Such was getting set for a speech, and he gave Phil a faintly pained look when the latter performed the desired introduction. Dr. Opperly surprised Phil by gallantly kissing Dighty's hand and then not letting go of it. He didn't behave at all like a scientist of eighty-plus years should. And Dighty turned on a lot more charm than Phil recalled her using on him. As the two of them stood there murmuring happy, but probably highly intelligent nothings to each other, Phil felt a jealous impulse to call out to Opperly, Wait until you see her real legs! But he somehow suspected that Opperly wouldn't be shocked at Dighty's real legs, or anything about her. He had noted a look of surprise came into Opperly's face as the latter took Dighty's hand, and from his own experience he'd known why, but Opperly's surprise had turned not to revulsion but to eager interest. Opperly's voice suddenly became sharp, clear, and romantic. I'd be delighted to, Miss De Silva. Dighty turned to the others with a self-satisfied smile. Opperly me got much talk about, she announced. Excuse, please. Dion, you take care of pussycat business, me. And she and Dr. Opperly strolled out through the dining room arm in arm, beaming at each other and chatting happily. Sacheverell looked after them a shade critically. They don't seem to have any great regard for the importance of the situation. I must say, so we'll carry on by ourselves in making plans to rescue the green one. Mr. Gish, what have you to contribute? In a few sentences... Phil sketched how he'd found Lucky at Fun Incorporated, lost him again, then caught up with him at the Humberford Foundation, just before Dora Pans grabbed him. As soon as Phil finished, Mary Accolade cut in. She was through sewing clothes, and had begun to put them on a relatively bulky doll, which Phil recognized as the portrait of Mo Brimstein she'd started on last night. To his amazement, Phil noticed that she was even putting underwear on the doll, 
and slipping almost microscopically tiny objects into his pants pockets with a tiny tweezer. She said, Did you happen to find out, Phil, why little old Dr. Omadka kidnapped those three cats of ours? Phil explained as briefly and unsickeningly as he could what had happened to them. Mary reached over her shoulder and got the doll that was the image of Dr. Omadka. She fixed on it her witchiest stare. Slow, slow acid dripped on your forehead, she incanted with a sincerity that sent goose flesh coursing under Phil's shirt. And I hope it's days before it gets in your eye. That's the first and mildest of your torments. She picked up the doll she'd been dressing and informed it. That goes for you, too. After the acid really gets in the first eye, we deviate to other parts of your body. To begin with, a sudden catfight prevented Phil from finding out just how nasty Mary Ackley's imagination could get. Satchevarel separated the five squalling combatants with a few painless but strategic kicks. Then he hitched up his turquoise slacks and said, looking at his wife severely, Now perhaps we can forget all hates and other dark vibrations and get down to business. Here's the situation, Mr. Gish. Earlier today, Juno overheard her husband Jackie tell Cookie where Billing and Mr. Brimstein are hiding. Just Mo Brimstein, Juno corrected dourly. Comes to the same thing, Satchevarel went on. Now Jackie and Cookie are safely asleep upstairs. Yes, Juno butted in again, but they're not going to stay that way for too much longer. Not after what you put in their whiskey, Satchevarel asked her with a thin smile. Listen, Juno told him. Those two guys have had more things in their whiskey than ever got wrote down in books, jerks like you read. They're tough, the little punks. Well, if they do wake up, I'm sure you can take care of the two of them. So there's the situation, Mr. Gish. And the only trouble is that Mrs. Jones won't tell us where Mr. Brimstein is. She started to, but then she shut up like an airlock. We've pleaded with her, we've implored her, we've promised her things. I've done my best to explain to her just how cosmically important it is that the Green One be served and worshipped properly, so that he will be able to change the world. Signor de Silver flattered and jollied her, and Dr. Opperly was friendly as anything, but she just won't talk. I sure won't talk to nuts like you, the female wrestler told him wrathfully. If you hadn't started acting so squirrely, I'd have probably spilled it straight off. But I'm not the sort of person who likes to be jollied or anything else. Excuse, please, the uninterrupted. No jolly, really mean, much like you, Juno Jones. Big, strong woman. And I don't enjoy nut talk, Juno said to Satchevarel, ignoring De Silva. Every crazy reason you gave me for talking made me that much sure I wouldn't. She took a drink and started towards Phil her elbows on her correspondingly large knees. Now with you it's different, she said. You got a nuts idea of food, but outside of that you're pretty human. And I gotta admit, you're a gutsy little guy, because I saw you go up against Brimstein, and from what I hear you did some more of the same later. But the main thing is that you own this crazy cat, or at least you was looking for it when I first met you. And I don't believe you had any nut ideas about it, though I thought so at the time. That right, Phil? Or are you planning to do something cosmic with that cat? I just want to find it, Phil said honestly. That settles it for me. It's your cat, and you got a right to know where it is. 
even if you get killed trying to get it, and I get into all sorts of mucking trouble for telling you. You want I should tell you in private, Phil? Or just say it right out in front of all these screwballs? Thank you, Juno, Phil said quietly. Just say it right out. Juno opened her mouth and then said, Oh, Lord. Phil turned around. Jack and Cookie were just coming in from the hall. Fine sort of wife you turned out to be, Jack informed Juno, starting towards her with his hands shoved deep in his pockets. Can't leave you ten minutes, but you start pulling some dumb trick. With circles under his eyes and a day's growth of beard, the black-sweatered little wrestler did a fair job of looking outraged and dejected. But Cookie, automatically imitating his hero, could produce only an expression like that of a blonde baby about to cry. Getting sneaky, too, Jack observed. Spying on me. Underhanded, Cookie commented. Underhanded? Juno banged the silver inlaid table so hard that it jumped and she had to grab at her glass in the bottle. Why, you two stinkers are so permanently underhanded, you couldn't play no game but softball. Also, I don't like the company you keep, Jack continued. The Eichless Joe was bad enough, he said, giving Phil the barest glance before going on to Silva. But where between here and Pluto did you ever pick up this silly greaser who can't even talk English? This corny gigolo, Cookie added witheringly. Dion, who until this moment had seemed merely interested, put down his glass and frowned at Jack. No like you, he asserted. You want kick and face? Trample? Phil winced, visualizing it in the full rich details. Do you know who you're talking to? Cookie demanded of Dion. Don't brawl, boys, Mary called in from the alcove, at least until I've finished this ticklish part. She was putting some finishing touches on Mo Brimstein's face under the magnifier. Then I think I'd like to watch you tramp around, Dion man. Don't anybody worry, Jack said sadly. I'm not looking for a fight even if I was handed one. I'm too downhearted about this innocent, thoughtless, uneducated wife of mine. Uneducated? she exploded. After being married to you all these years, you got so many rotten ideas, you're a whole university. Well, I've graduated. And shut up now, because I got to tell Phil here where he can find Mo Brimstein and maybe Billing and his cat. Jack whirled toward her. Juno, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you'd be doing. Just come upstairs a minute and I'll explain the whole deal. Come upstairs? Juno mocked. Tell that to the green farm girls trying to break into the wrestling racket. Now look here, Phil. Brimstein. Juno, Jack yelled. I didn't want to tell you in front of everybody, but there's a million dollars riding on this deal for me and you if Billing pulls out of his trouble, which he can do so long as he has the green cat to trade to the government. And look, Juno. Billing's lost all his bodyguards and power and everything. He's got to depend on Brimstein and me and Cookie. Juno stared at him. For a second or two there was silence. Then Sachevero coughed delicately. Jack, he said unheardly, I'm convinced that you have a deep appreciation of spiritual values. Your aura may flicker and dim, but in the end it always glows out bright and clear. Yesterday you gave up $10,000 Mo Brimstein would have given you for the green one just in order that we might worship him properly and help him change the world. Now, if you're willing to do that... I know, I know. 
Jack snarled at him impatiently. But this time it's really big money. Sachevero looked up at the ceiling, as if he were silently telling some god just how evil a world it was. I was flattered by you and Mary for a while, Jack went on. I liked your style, and I fell for some of your wild ideas. I played along with you to the tune of ten thousand dollars, though I won't say I wasn't going to steal the green cap back and sell it to the Brimstein after you'd had your fun with it. But tuck your aura up over your ears and get this through your head. This time it's really big money. Sachevero said, Mary, remind me to burn our black sweaters tomorrow morning. From the look on Juno's face, Phil could tell that Jack had finally done something to please her, but he had done it rather too late. The satisfaction washed out of Juno's face, and only the grimness was left as she said to him, That million was just for you, Jack, or for you and Cookie until half a minute ago. Another thing, Billing isn't going to pull out of this, and if he did, he's the kind of man who kills the people who save him. But even if he got your million, I wouldn't take any part of it. Don't get the idea that anybody, including that crazy green cat, has made me go soft. It's just that I wouldn't ever accept anything from you, Jack. Not ever again. Without a pause, she turned to Phil and said, Brimstein's behind the counter in the Bug-Eyed Bar in All Pleasures Amusement Park. I'll take you to the exact spot. At that moment, when everyone was watching Juno, a cool, scornful voice spoke from the dining room. And we'll be coming along. Phil's head followed the others around. Standing in front of Lucky's altar, his bulging forehead wrinkled with unsmiling amusement, was Carstairs. To his left stood Llewellyn, eyes gleaming in his impassive black face. To Carstairs' right lounged Buck, yawning but watchful. Phil got the feeling that the hep thugs were trying to look like the muzzles of the weapons they held with casual proficiency. Close beside Buck and a little behind him stood Mitzi Romodka. Carstairs said, We've been finding out some things about this green cat ourselves. He could talk very softly because there wasn't any noise in the room. We think it'd be a lot more desirable if we were the ones who sold the cat to Uncle Sammy. You people are going to help us get the cat. Incidentally, clown, he addressed Phil, your little girlfriend here was responsible for our locating you people. Isn't that so, Mitz? But Mitzi said nothing. To Phil, she looked remarkably pale, tight-lipped, and miserable for a girl enjoying a revenge. Yes, Carstairs continued. She came whimpering to us a little while ago, asking us to kidnap you or something silly like that. Can you imagine, clown? Your girlfriend was stupid enough to think we'd be pleased at her, and even do something for her. After we'd kicked her out of the gang and she'd skunked it on us to billing, youthful illusions die hard. Well, instead of that, she did something for us. After a little persuasion, she told us all she knows about the green cat and you people, also some addresses, including this one. And now Phil saw that Mitzi was looking at him agitatedly and trying to speak, but couldn't get her mouth open. He realized her mouth must be taped shut with some transparent, non-reflecting material. Buck noticed and twisted her wrist while thoughtfully watching her face. Carstairs concluded, there's not much more to say. You, and you, and you, and he stabbed a gun muzzle at Jack, Cookie, and Sachevero, are staying here with my friend Llewellyn. Dear little Mitz will stay here, too. That's partly in case you get any funny ideas, clown. The rest of you are coming along with Buck and me, 
on a thrill-packed trip to all pleasures. According to what Mitz tells us, you all may have useful angles on catching this cat for us. Transportation's out in front. Juno got up with a sullen shrug. Dion, for once, was very quiet. Phil found himself wondering whether or not Operly and Dighty had avoided the hep thugs. Mary Ackley took the dolls depicting Moe Brimstein and Dr. Omadka, put them in a big handbag, caught up a bolero jacket, and calmly announced, Well, I'm ready. End of chapter 18